Welcome everyone to a special edition of the Hilliard Beacon Audio Companion. We are joined this week by our good friends Tim Hoffman, Kevin Corvo, and current Grand Marshal of 4th of July festivities and former Mayor of Hilliard, Ohio, Roger Reynolds. Roger, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to thinking back and seeing and talk about old times and how the city got developed over the past years. Yeah. This will be a, a combination reminiscence on, on some of the things that have gone in uh, the decades and years prior during your tenure and previous to, uh, and up to current day. I, I have some questions I want to talk to you about a little bit later about structure and evolution of government and things like that as they've gone on. But uh, Kevin wanted to get us started with some uh, some earlier reminiscences of uh, Hilliard in days gone by. So Kevin, why don't you why don't you tell us what you've got there in front of you? <laughs> uh, thanks, Jordan, and thanks, uh, Mayor Reynolds, for uh, uh, joining us. This is his second time coming in the studio. Yeah, uh, part I two thought, of Infinity yeah. Symbol. If we're if we're lucky enough. So okay. people love um, restaurants and food. So I thought we would talk a little bit about some of the past uh, restaurants. We'll be getting some new restaurants and some unique restaurants. I believe um, in the True Point um, development that's going to come online. They'll be start construction here. Well, I guess it's already underway. Actually, uh, City Council is considering some um, TIF mechanisms and things at their next meeting um, to, to to push this project forward. Uh, Second so, reading coming up, and, yeah. and yeah, I think it might be interesting to look at the history of what we've had in Hilliard in light of uh, what may be to come, and maybe. Uh, what all that means in in the sense of is that the kind of mm-hmm. economic development that we're seeing? Is that the kind of economic development that we want? But you know, go ahead, Kevin, take it away. Uh, the jump off point here is uh, Don Gino's Don Gino's restaurant, which was my very first job. Uh, Mayor Reynolds uh, was good friends with the owner Don Gabriel. Uh, Don Gabriel. Uh, passed only not so long ago in 2018 96 years old and i can still remember don uh walking up and down cemetery road he lived there in the hilliard arms apartments um uh for quite a while at least through the 1990s and um, early 2000s as an owner of the business uh well he sold the business uh but he continued to live at the hilliard arms apartments i'm not quite sure what he stayed in the neighborhood stayed in the neighborhood for a while i think he did he move to westerville and his uh, toward the end of his, I don't, I don't he, think he was he, living in Hillary when he died. He moved, but he okay. did not move to Westerville. It was some oh. other community where he got involved in the broadcasting, I remember right. Okay. Uh, and he was in radio, and I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. So when he hired me, uh, I, uh, I printed this out this morning. Uh, uh, Don Gabriel was a radio broadcaster at WJW in Cleveland in the 1950s. He hosted Don's Early Light, D-O-N apostrophe S, oh. Early Light. Good yes. name for a program. As a naming aficionado, as somebody who likes to come up with names for things, <laughs> I like. And he had the wigwam warm-up for the Cleveland Indians. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Now, there is a name that wouldn't have survived until 2023. No, that one's out. <laughs> but so. that would have been out, the wigwam warm-up. Um, and so Don is short for Donald. It's not an honorific... Uh, <laughs> It's not, it's not an Italian honor. It's not his role in it. It's not his role. That's correct. Nothing like that. But I can remember Don at the restaurant um, asking me to you know, take this here, do this, stock this, do this. And I'd mumble something back. And he would say, 
get the marbles out of your mouth, enunciate, speak up. And I'm thinking, you know, why does why is it important that I enunciate? I'm doing what I've been asked to do at a at a restaurant, but that is why. And that was compl- I had no idea at that 15 years old. But um, it was a radio. That was a fun first job I had. Uh, well, Mayor, well, Mayor Don, Reynolds, Mayor Don, Reynolds uh, and the staff, his staff went over there for lunch a lot. I, I knew Don pretty well. And he was a former broadcaster. He had a great personality. We used to, and, and he's another person that hired a young people to work in his restaurant and, and uh, helped them with their finances. He was just an all-around good guy. You know, we used to tease him unmercifully because he he had plastic beer glasses, and uh, we would <laughs> a lot of head on those. We would we would get on him pretty pretty hard about the, the plastic beer glasses. We went on a, a trip to Lake Erie together, and uh, it, we had him out on the on the water, mm-hmm. and then he, he really got laid into by a bunch of people from Hilliard. But this is teasing him in good nature, you know, right. and. I know when he went back, he got rid of his plastic beer, beer. <laughs> and, went, and went to, uh, it was just a fun time, nice guy. Yeah. But you know, uh, restaurants, so we moved here in 1958, but there's one little restaurant up on Main Street called the M&M, owned by the Montgomery's, and then there was a nice one, they had good food and home cooking and all that kind of stuff, but as the city grew, uh, we need more than one eating so uh, uh, we, the people got excited when a burger chef came into the city, and it was there for a number of years over on Cemetery Road. I remember the burger chef. And uh, then the LK restaurant came in, and we thought we were really an up-class in because, you know, Made it three. Very, very, very nice restaurant. That one I remember, too. That survived until the 1980s. The yeah, what kind of food they served there? Diner style? LK? I mean, it's not very descriptive. LK was uh, just a family restaurant. Mm -hmm. Like a Lums, maybe? Something like a Lums, right. Right. And then we had a a Frisch's came in right on Cemetery Road down near the uh, Lyman in that area. That's where Sheets is now. Yes, and they were here for, for quite a while. Oh. Because Max and Irma is in between. Max and Irma's took over that spot. We had uh, Mark Pye came in with his China Gate during this period of time, and yeah. and uh, he really upped the class in Hilliard because it, it, his waitresses wore the long Chinese dresses and the guys wore tuxedos, and you had to uh, actually make reservations. Make, make, make reservations okay. with the uh, uh, the tablecloths and the linen tablecloths and everything, and. He was uh, had a world's record for noodle making. He would demonstrate from time to time. That used yeah. to that big plaque and the story that accompanied it used to hang in the front of that Mill Run location until it did, was no longer a Mark Pies. I remember right when I came to Hilliard, there was a big placard up in front of that restaurant that had the big story that was featured in the dispatch mm-hmm. about the world record noodle making and the speed with which this guy could cut noodle. It was kind of that too. Mark Pies was well, there. Mark came in my office and told us he was going to <coughs> build a restaurant there. And I said, well, what's the difference between your restaurant and we can go to Ding Ho's or on Broad Street, he said, and, and get Chinese food. <laughs> he says, my cuisine is like French cuisine. 
He says, and the, the other is like uh, T.J. So, <laughs> so, what what was the process? Um, I imagine it wasn't as involved. If a restaurant wanted to build in Hilliard, there was there was planning and zoning. I imagine. Oh, but, yes. but it probably wasn't quite as quite quite as many steps. I suppose. Oh yeah, probably there was, but by then. Uh, we have to do the normal routine through planning and zoning, be approved by council, and Three so forth. So everyone had a little bit of input to everything. So Mark was here for quite a while. You know, uh, he's very, very famous in the industry. Mm -hmm. He's uh, moved to uh, Las Vegas and opened up some Chinese restaurants. Of course, he had them all around Ohio. There's still some Mark Pies in like a university has one. I didn't know that. Well, he went through the full business cycle, the full business cycle of having a full-service restaurant where the service staff was wearing tuxedos, yes. dresses, and linen tablecloths, and then they proceeded to develop the thing into Mark Pie's quick service, yeah, like Pye's frontage Express. in the in the mini mall culture that existed around the on, 80s. And on 90s. our 35th wedding anniversary, I remember Mark Pie invited us. We went to Las Vegas when he was there, and they took us into Chinatown and to a a, uh, some Chinese restaurants there, you know, and it was very interesting. Brought us a big uh, stainless steel bowl with uh, things crawling around in it and tell pick what you want and we'll go fix it, you know. So that was How many <laughs> years later was that? How many years later was that from his time in Hilliard, from his time setting up in Hilliard to when that? When that? Uh, oh, I don't know, maybe 10 years or so. We kept, we kept in, I still uh, have contact with so the, the, Ohio the family. The Ohio his, restaurants his, really played a big role in his right. development. Yeah, his son is still here in the area, and they run a, a uh, food, uh, Chinese food area, you know, people or uh, Chinese restaurants get their food, get their food, uh, a commissary, commis uh, commissary, yes. I yeah. so, but I checked up on him one time, and uh, we went, he was in Los Angeles, and uh, he was not there, but his wife was, we chatted, chatted with her, but Mark was in, uh, uh, some always oh, in South Africa and opening a restaurant there and you look you look him up and, uh, and you'll see he's they're all over the world so, right. and then he started here in Hilliard so makes is pretty good I didn't know that that's amazing yeah. maybe we should get then, the, get then the map out and do the pins <laughs> he sold out to uh, Ryle's Supper Club they came there it was a, play, a dancing place and food and so forth and it was uh another upscale restaurant one in that spot but we came a long way from the M&M as you look in the old Hilliard now for instance there's a multitude of, of good family restaurants you know and uh, it's a old Hilliard's become a, a draw uh, it's a, a place to go to talk a little bit about Odie's in the yard club having a couple of places like that right down there Odie's within a block Center Street Market well, I mean, now, present day, yeah. of course, yeah. but I mean, like, I the history of the yard club. That when, was back when, uh, when I said the M&M &M was uh, the first uh, restaurant up there, that's true. But at the same time, Odie's was there on the corner by the railroad track, and across the street was a, another bar-type place. Lunch counter, bar-type uh, stuff. I'm about to lay a lot of... Uh, booze in there, you know, so mm -hmm. it, it was popular for the railroaders and uh, people uh, coming into Hilliard. Uh, mm -hmm. It's uh, 
funny stories. Uh, they, Ernie was, is, is, he's still alive, he's a wonderful guy. He and his wife are very nice people. They've done a lot for Hilliard and, and uh, the, the helped with getting old Hilliard uh, uh, festival started and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, if they get rowdy in this restaurant, now we're going back in the, you know, the 70s. Mm -hmm. I mean, he'd get his baseball out, bat out and, and, and run them out. And they'd go across the street to the other bar. Get them into the so, street. So, so, so he's helping in the business the other, other bar. Funny thing, these guys would uh, get a, a ticket for OMVI or something, and they're locked up, and they're allowed one phone call. So at 2 o'clock in the morning, maybe, I get this phone call. Everyone knew the mayor, so I, I'm the one that called. And so one, one let out of jail. Oh, that happened so much. Another, we had a, and we had uh, Reynolds drugstore that's where uh, abner's is located now but it was uh, uh reynolds drugstore was there when was that reynolds? and having the same name mm -hmm. uh, people would call me at night to uh, get a emergency prescription or something you know right. so that was that was a kind of an interesting time when was that reynolds drugstore there Reynolds? Yeah. That was a big big drugstore here. Well, yeah. What, this, this in the 70s too? Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Did they have entry from both sides then too? So you would have... I, I, I want to go to Ben. Well, I you, think it's you, Will caught, you caught me up. It was Will Barters. Will Barters. And Reynolds was the hardware. Reynolds hardware yeah. down on Main Street. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, get caught get caught uh, filing those prescriptions for uh, 10 penny nails and all that. You can call them for a late night uh, lag bolt. <laughs> what... What do you remember most about the last time you were here? The thing that stuck with me was the decision to put in sidewalks on Cemetery Road as a meaningful choice in moving the city ahead in public safety, essentially, and kind of taking that view of things. Trying to tie this city together back then, trying to make those things connect. How did that go? What let was me, the sense of it? Let me give you that story. <clears throat> Uh, when I talk at schools and so forth, this, this always comes up. But we moved to Hilliard in 1958, okay, and raised our family. They got school age, and they built J.W. Reason Elementary School, very close, mm -hmm. just off Cemetery Road. At the same time, they built a uh, junior high, Britain Junior High on Britain Road. Mm -hmm. And the architect named Bob Castle was speaking at that first PTO meeting at J.W. Reason, and uh, I held up my hand and asked some questions about the elevators and things in the, at the Britain School. And Roy Moore, who was the principal shortly after, said, well, this is our first meeting. We need to elect the president of the uh, uh, PTA, it was PTA then, and uh, is there a nomination for president? And one of the people in the audience says, I don't know him, but I'd like to nominate the fellows asking the questions so I became the first president of the of the PTA and uh, during this time I got appointed to the uh, advisory committee for the school school council get the exact name of it or not and the kids then from data from going to JW reason with no sidewalks there's only like a 17 foot wide road they're walking in people's front yards or out in the street sure and the school superintendent, who was Jim Diley at that time, asked me as a represent the schools and go to city council and ask for 
sidewalks down Cemetery Road, which I did. And of course, back then, the uh, city council was made up of elderly people that watched their tax dollars very closely and so forth. And they got turned down rather unceremoniously. And leaving that meeting, Jim Diley, the superintendent, says, why don't you run for city council? He says, and I'll get you some support and, uh, and see what happens. So I did. I got on city, I got the most votes that year and make, I was on city council. And it all started because I went to city council asking for sidewalks. Right. Now the other thing we kind of started, and I won't say we started, I saw it in other communities. Uh, you'll, you'll notice a lot of streets will have concrete sidewalks on one side and asphalt on the other side. Hmm. You'll, you'll, you'll see that A path style. Right, uh -huh. so for the walkers and so forth. And uh, that, that's been very popular. And of course, we've got all the uh, running paths and things here in Hilliard. We started those a long time ago. But that was my story about the cemetery road and the road widening. But uh, since that time, I mean, you had to have sidewalks from then on, you know. So Yeah, it's things. Oh, go ahead, Kevin. Those sidewalks you got, um, I would ride my bike, um, going back to Don Gino's for a little bit. That's the first job I had. So I rode my bike from the Beacon Edition, Jeanette mm -hmm. to Hillcrest. You're right. Um, popped out on Cemetery Road there at Hillcrest and uh, went on to Don Gino's. So I spent the summer of 1985 working there. $3 an hour. Used that money to buy a CD player. From a CD player? From, no, I bought, a, I bought an amplifier. No, a Panasonic um, rack system. So I had a turntable, Ooh. equalizer, dual, dual cassette deck. Nice. I think it was high about speed dubbing. Of high course. speed dubbing. Yeah, I think it was about three hundred dollars uh, from um, uh, service merchandise. Uh, and I bought my first CDs from Buzzers Nest Records. Buzzers Nest Records. Uh, How Bruce, long were they around? Bruce Springsteen, uh, born Buzzards in the USA, Nest. and um, Buzzers Nest Joe, on West Broad Street. Okay. Uh, in fact, just down from Sun TV, I buy my blank cassette tapes from Sun TV. And um, tape stuff off the radio. So that's what I did with my money from Don Gino's Pizza. <laughs> so that was that was a fun first job. Um, Don hired a um, manager, and he also lived at the Hilliard Arms Apartments. He was probably about thirty years old, had a wife, um, a couple kids, and uh, again, I look back now and realize, you know, this was Don's retirement gig basically. So he hired somebody to to oversee the store, so he didn't need to be there all the time. So this man um, left store one day, and he left two people there. He left me at 15 years old <laughs> and left a high school student um, who was actually the son of one of the Hilliard police officers. So he leaves an 18-year-old and a 15-year-old in the restaurant, just the two of us. And he went off to find the September 1985 edition of Playboy magazine <laughs> because Madonna was in it. <laughs> And, uh, of course, Madonna was huge that summer with, uh, with everything. Um, but she had apparently posed for some uh, pictures, I think, in Europe. Um, and years before. Yeah, oh, yeah. I think it was probably five or six years earlier. I guess I could have Googled that and, and looked it up. Uh, but So he left us there. You know, imagine the time. He, I mean, he drove to, like, four different places that day trying to find a copy of that. These are the things. <laughs> He finally comes back like two hours later We're with a copy. It. I found it. <laughs> but meanwhile, he had left probably two uh, teenagers who might not have been well, you know, handled the lunch prepared to, 
He waited until after the lunch rush was over. Oh, so fortunately, well, fortunately, I mean, there was no lunch rush. But I don't know that Don would have been pleased if Hattie showed up. That there was only the <laughs> there was only the two of them. I'm sure there. he clocked out. Like, uh, I'm sure you got to review the Playboy magazine. Oh uh, yeah, he okay. did put it out, put it out there, okay. and said, "Hey, take a look." I was going to say the bigger crime was um, probably showing the, the bigger crime was probably showing a 15 year old a copy of the Playboy but, magazine. You know, I mean, probably true. This is all, this um, is all in the old days. So. Um, another night we left there, uh, well, midnight I must have been, and um, they would, uh, the other employees that worked there would drop me off and pick me up sometimes. So on this particular night I was getting a ride home, and uh, Don did show up. Don shows up to see what's going on. And the aforementioned uh, co-worker had put some pizzas in his car and I think some liters of pop and was going to... Back to his house for a house party because it's called after hours. He, he invited some friends over because it's called after hours. <laughs> so and Don shows up, says, "Oh, I see. He's not the only one. He's the only one not taking anything because the rest of us had like a pizza." But he had meanwhile put some other things in his car. We didn't say anything. So, um, well, you passed an important test that Don night. knew Number about one, that. Rat. <laughs> Never rat on your friends. Number back two. to your Italian reference. Mm-hmm. Right. Always two. keep your mouth shut. <laughs> you still had stuff to eat and drink when you got back to the place and had the yeah, hours like you originally planned to. That area before Don Gino was a pizza shop. I can't remember. What was it before that? Because it went it from Don Gino's to Gatto's to Iconos, and now it's Massey's. So it's always been a pizza, pizza place. Pizza, pizza, no, pizza. I, I was thinking of Gatto's, but they came after them. Gatto's came they, afterwards. Before that, then, there was a little restaurant in there, a little Chinese restaurant, and uh, then, okay. the, then the, what became a pizza shop. But the, Hilliard has never been short on pizza restaurants. Not at all. The, I did a story on that the, for Northwest the, News. The uh, first one was... Stan's, Luigi's. Luigi, Stan's and Luigi were both there. Both of them were nice people. I've known Luigi since well, he's ten years old, and and Stan was a great citizen here. He did a lot of things in the city, and and uh, just just a nice all around guy. There were probably more, but those are the earliest ones I remember. Well, you bring up pizza, and it's interesting because we know a couple of things, right? We know a diversity of options doesn't equal an increase in demand. So as the city was growing, there were other pizza places and there was room for all that stuff and there's plenty of diversity in the offering now as the city is still growing it seems like there's even more diversity in the offering but I don't know how many of those places are actually doing all they could do, doing every bit that they want to be doing Mm -hmm. and what do you think, if anything, is the role of, say like a government an administration like yours in the position to say, okay We've got these local business people, Don Gino's, Luigi's, people that have grown in the community, say modern equivalents or things like Off Center, right behind the uh, apartment here, or right behind the warehouse here. What can people do, or what can government do, what can a city do to make it uh, multi-generational? Like, to help people take businesses from one set of hands to the next. Because I think... What I see a lot of is a lot of diversity in the offering. You've got four or five grocery stores, supermarket size, but what's the actual meaningful difference between those four or five offerings? So in the local business economy, say you've got a great Italian restaurant, but what do you do to make it permanent? What do you do to make it enduring? What, what can you do? Do you not get involved in that? 
I don't believe the city would get too involved in, in, in uh, private enterprise other than encourage people to shop locally and eat locally. And uh, I know when uh, I would be having a, uh, uh, something going on, I would uh, call a restaurant and have reservations for business. I had, a good example would be Mark Pies. There's a, some property I was trying to peddle this Japanese firm, and uh, I uh, had them come in, and I, I had someone from the chamber who could speak Japanese, wow. and uh, I called Mark Pye, and he set half his restaurant up for these people, and he helped sell us uh, this property to the Japanese, and uh, that went very well. So. They, they, they cooperate with the city and the city cooperates with them. Yeah, I think that points to like a, a benefit of a more informal structure, an, an arrangement of people, a sociable arrangement as opposed to a financial mechanisms arrangement. Mm -hmm. um, development has been uh, stop-start at various times in Hilliard. It's been more flowing and less flowing. It's been more subsidized and less subsidized. Let me back in the early days uh, there were businesses coming in small ones and so forth we did have uh, uh, nice and we had uh, C CVI coming in we had uh, Beasley Industries down your area and then, then uh, uh, Medics and Wagner Medics. Brick Wagner Brick Shoe and we had the glue place down there in that area. Zombie can yeah. okay. Bruner. Bruner was early eighties. Local so, ownership. So they were bringing their businesses in and like I've often said, when businesses comes in they gotta have people work here. Sure. So we started growing then uh, residentially. I, I had some business smaller businesses say, We need more Rooftops. They kept saying, "I want rooftops. We want more rooftops." Well, it was hard to get rooftops back then. I went to uh, uh, Pete Edwards. I don't know if you know Pete Edwards, but he's a big time, big time builder. He built a parade of homes in Hilliard and Soda Road. And and I said, "Pete, we need some homes." And and he says, "I don't have any inventory cheap enough for Hilliard." Okay. So he wrote us off. And, and this happened to uh, several other business people. Would tell us that. And uh, but, but finally, a fellow named Dan O'Brien came in, and he built the Heritage Golf Course and uh, uh, Heather Ridge and some other things, and it was very successful. And then we start getting attention from people, and and uh, I remember the, the uh, we had uh, uh, dry cleaners come in, but we had a dry cleaners, and the guy said that had that dry cleaner, and oh, it's still there in Old Hilliard. He says, well, I, I met. Uh, bring up new businesses in and bring in houses. He said, I didn't mean for you to bring in another dry cleaners. Right. So he was unhappy. So. <laughs> right. Well, there's there's always going to be competition in the under market that services the larger concerns. You know, the larger businesses, as they say, they want rooftops, they want people to employ, but they also want people there to buy their goods, their services, if they're doing more retail-focused stuff, if they, even if they're just trying to hire, right? They need more people to hire from. Well, that causes competition between those people. Right. Which is benefits the resident. In what way? Well, financially. I mean, the, the difference, they have different sales and all that sort of thing to get people to come into your, your place. So you know? you're talking price competition yeah, right. between those entities. That's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah sure. 
between those things, though, given that there's, say, like four supermarkets mm-hmm. competing for the residents of the surrounding area, mm-hmm. consider it the county or what have you, if they're all sharing fair uh, a, per- a fair percentage of that, what is the so what is the name for that equilibrium? Is that acceptable? Should there be pressure to continue uh, competition because obviously inflation is there, those kind of concerns are there. I, I think that the city to say like uh, competition alone is enough uh, to suggest policy direction or to encourage competition is enough to suggest policy direction at this point at the city level kind of interesting. What do you think should chart the course for business development in the new... That's controlled by our master plan and through planning and zoning. Uh, we use... Uh, uh, An attractiveness they'll, they'll, of the community. They'll, they'll, Who wants to they'll, come? They'll zone areas which will include the retail, commercial, sure. and, and homes. And a lot of these areas are just got everything they need right in their own area, you know. Walkable, 15, 20 minutes. Walkable. That'll be the smaller type places, you know, donut shops and things like that. Yeah, I'm familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely familiar. Uh, One of those candidates for more of that kind of development, changing zoning slightly to modify existing plots and existing parcels for new demand. So, for example, over in the Beacon area where they've lost Bruner in the last couple of years, uh, they went down during pandemic and things like that and didn't come back. Now someone else has got that property. But what will be developed in some of those infill parcels that we've talked about as part, like you say, the community plan is determining that infill development is more in vogue. So they got to meet certain specifications through our code. Setbacks yeah. and things like that, right? right. Available mm-hmm. land and Correct. ability density requirements and things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Absolutely. Okay, so there's like... And there's a lot of new things coming in now on Cemetery Road. There's a, a, I'm sorry, Truman Boulevard. There's a large, large area coming in of, of commercial, residential. And, uh, uh, and I see they've started breaking ground over there now. So. Yeah, Kevin's been doing some dive on that. It's True Point Development. True Point. It's a, uh, equity. Yes. Um, they've had those holdings for a lot of years over there in that area, and now they're pursuing tax increment financing, which is one of these financial mechanisms that casts a net into the future to reclaim a percentage of projected tax revenues to make development happen now. In that arena, in those budgetary mechanisms... What's your perspective on that? The 1990 budget, I just looked at it a while ago, uh, is on archive in the Columbus Library Mm -hmm. for Hilliard. It looks a lot different than the 2023 budget and financial statements and everything. A lot of the reason behind that is because the accounting and back office mechanisms for funding a lot of these funds have gotten a lot more complex. The general fund is not the sole draw any longer for things that need to be developed for the public interest or that can be developed for the private interest. What do you think is, uh, like you said, it's controlled through planning, zoning, community plan, but what is the role of these financial mechanisms in community development in 2023? The city gets involved in some of these bigger projects that, that, that when they come in, 
they ask that question to the city. What are you going to do for us if we come in? Mm-hmm. You know, so then your various tax programs kick in. You know, your tax abatements. Your uh, uh, there's there's a multitude of them. There's state projects, and uh, we had a community development corporation back. I don't think that's in existence anymore, but. Uh, they would come to us for recommendations, and we would help them get uh, uh, small business loans and that sort of thing. So uh, it's it's all the tax. This business is going to go where they're going to make most money, you know. And one of the big things they do is pay taxes. But it, once they're in and, and paying those taxes, there's more benefits to the residents of the city because there's tax dollars coming in where we can build big parks and, and uh, new sewer lines and all that sort of thing, you know, sure. from those tax dollars. The argument is that the improved value is much more beneficial to the residents than the unimproved value. That's absolutely value. correct. The idea being then, what's a good bet, what's a bad bet, and who makes those judicious choices and how open to uh, public democracy, public input, um, those decisions are. I think, personally. Uh, I tend to hew against small rooms of people making decisions for the future that are essentially Swiss-cheesing these tax bases for other important community uh, concerns, mm-hmm. you know, like Department of uh, Mental Health, uh, Adam H., uh, all these various things that rely on a tax base that's more like a blanket and less like Swiss cheese. And to think that these agreements now extend 30 to 40 years into the future in order to get something done today, uh, I don't know. That's, that's a risk. That's a calculated risk that, as you said, governments undertake in order to attract business. Whether or not those uh, things bear fruit, I, I think we're, the verdict's still out on that. Because where it, these, it, are, it, these it, financial it, arrangements started in California, they've been banned for <laughs> And reformat it. So it takes cooperation, though. Sure. And it takes cooperation uh, with uh, the schools, for instance. Sometimes yeah. they're the ones that uh, it's their dollars that you're giving away, really. Yeah. So because the city's going to get income tax in, so you can work out deals with the school that you'll give them part of those income tax and right. all that sort of thing. I just feel like that's last the man. City, the city often did that. Made, and, made, and made the school district whole. Correct. On they their have, own. They've adjusted these things because there's been significant pushback to them as they were existing mm-hmm. prior to. Where they were taking bites out of the schools, people push back on it. Now they say, okay, this won't take a bite out of the schools or the county for emergency services. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it still takes a bite out of other important things that we've all democratically voted to support with our tax dollars. Uh, unencumbered by private development ambitions. But again, these are what we elect city council people to uh, evaluate and determine. What's the role of uh, the public's input? And, you know, in the organizational chart, the city has gone through extraordinary lengths over the years to make sure that city residents appear at the very top of that organizational chart, regardless of who falls in under that, no matter whether the city was 5,000 residents or now close to 40,000 residents. What do you think the public's role? Of course, uh, uh, city council and planning and zoning and and so are open to the public to come in 
sure. for their viewpoint. And they'll actually go out and seek that viewpoint from uh, uh, the residents. The city does that through, um, well, through, through the websites now. So. Oh, sure. Um, but, you know, when I look at the community action plan, it said it involved the input of 150 people. All right. At 150 people, that's meaningfully representative in a data set kind of way. But that's just 150 people. This is a big city. And, you know, I would like to see a little more direct participation in these things. But, again, like you said, they solicit these Sometimes that requires the public to be yes, more I involved agree. and respond to, I agree. to the city's um, effort. I agree. I agree. And the largest crowds at a council meeting or planning and zoning is, is, is zoning. You right. Know. Land use, land the use. stuff Absolutely. they don't make that, anymore. That of. brings people. People says, "I don't want that in my backyard." The Dimbies, they call them. You know, we, sure. we don't want that. A lot that. of people were there for the parking pad. Yeah. They want to build at the fairgrounds, and that's still moving through now. Mm. So, well, it hasn't been presented yet well, at all. It, it will need to go through planning and zoning, and it will need to go to city council. Uh, but they're just now testing the waters to see what the what the pushback or what the concern might be for the people who live nearest to it. A developer will come in and meet with the mayor who will meet with the service director and other people on his staff and go over everything, make their recommendations and so forth. And there's a city planner who comes in and looks at everything. Okay. And then it's presented to planning and zoning. Okay, and they have their input. So then and they take input from the residents or out in the audience holding their hands up and saying, why don't we do it this way? I got you two so minutes. I, I got you three taken. minutes, yeah. And from there, it goes to city council for approval, and you have the same deal. you got the big crowd out there, and people have all kinds of questions, and uh, hopefully their questions get satisfied. But uh, I guess that's democracy. That's, all, that's, that's the way we go to work. Yeah, as presently constituted, those three-hour council meetings are you know, a feature uh, and a bug simultaneously, I think. Uh, I think there's plenty of opportunity to develop ancillary systems, uh, ward representation, ward meetings that could take some of the heat off those main council meetings that could create a, a, a better uh, structure for meaningful public input, I think. But that requires, again, meaningful public input. And if you've got 150 people turning out when they're asked, for meaningful input when you need thousands and thousands of people to turn out to make change when they're not being asked. I think we're pretty far away from getting some of the things that I want uh, for the people of this city so that they can have meaningful representation. But uh, given the lack of that, or given the present shape of that, let me ask a quick question. It seems that lawfare, the use of the legal system in the uh, execution of city government has become more and more regular people deploying lawsuits and legal filings to get things done or not done in city government. Was the city ever sued when you were in office as mayor? No. No? And you feel like the law director uh, under your administration, was it elected, appointed? Uh, appointed. Uh, it's always been appointed. appointed. Let me tell you about my law director. Yes, tell yeah, us. Yeah. The initial my law director, my first, right? My first one, Bill Taylor. Okay. He became a federal magistrate. He was so well respected. Any particular district, or I was down in the southern region somewhere. Mm. Okay. 
Mike Close was my next one. Are you familiar with Mike Close? What did he go on to? A, a, a common pleas court. Yeah. That was what my grandfather was for 25 years, an elected common pleas court judge. So he 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 went on to that, and then yeah, uh, Chuck Schneider. Right? Then Charles Charles Schneider. Charles Schneider was the uh, the next one after that, and he became a common pleas judge, and he was the uh, head of a welfare uh, the attorney's law library. And all kind of things. He so, was a, he was a top. And he was administrative judge. Administrative judge. Thank you, Kevin. Administrative judge. So he was absolutely fan oh, fantastic. Okay. And then my last one was Catherine Cunningham, who was uh, I thought very 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 good and very talented. And she's with some law, big law firm at this time. So I had excellent, excellent. In your because opinion, that was that's where I'm coming from, you know, because. All my directors were the tops, the tops I could possibly find. So when you got your, your yeah, they know they, you know, here I am, uh, an accountant, sure. elected to this position, and who's in charge of the police department and the roads and uh, the sewers and everything. So what am I going to do? Well, I want someone that knows that kind of stuff and makes recommendations to me. That's why we had staff meetings on every Monday night, so we'd know what the other guy was doing, too. We communicated very well. That, in my opinion, right there, what Roger just said, seeking, finding, and choosing people that are interested in this kind of work, that are the top of their profession, and that have solid professional reputations, you can't substitute that. You can't get that by having a popularity contest. That's right or putting it up for a vote. So whereas you need good, reliable legal counsel from this law director position, how you get it is asking for it. Who you're getting it from is a factor of the structure of the government. Who you're getting that advice from when you ask for it can either be some Yahoo mm -hmm. that corralled the votes that year, or it can be somebody who's got ambitions to become a federal magistrate. It can be somebody who's got ambitions to be a, a common pleas court judge for 25 years. Mm -hmm. You can make good choices for the people you represent and still represent them democratically. Mm -hmm. So given the current situation that's facing our city council vis-a-vis -vis these decisions regarding whether or not we should amend the charter to change the legal director to an elected position mm -hmm. and the finance director to a appointed position that is unaccountable to normal administrative uh, review and only accountable to council review, making it essentially captured via politics in some respects if we're not being charitable. I think what you've got to do is rely on professionalism and rely on people making good professional appointments. Did you see the shiver go up my back when you said uh, I did. elect a law director? I did see that shiver go up your back. What do you think about electing a law director? Uh, no. I, no. That, I, that no. is it. That would, not be, that no. would not be a no. good idea. No, no. Finance director. Uh, or even the finance director, uh, I don't think, should be uh, thrown to the but, but, but my finance director back then, and probably still is, it was with the advice and consent of council, mm -hmm. which they always went along, but 
they want to know a little bit who's handling the money, you know. So. Sure. Mm -hmm. But everything else is you know, strictly. I, well, I pointed everybody, but the only one that needed approval was city council. Right on. Which for the finance director. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I covered a city that elected, a suburban city that elected their law director, and I'm just a reporter looking from the outside. Sure. But, but, but I bring the same perspective. And, and also as a reporter, um, uh, I, I would accept things off the record. So I was aware of what some people thought that I never put in print. And this particular city had a law director that, I mean, they went to find somebody and pretty much had to persuade somebody to run against this guy because we can't have him unopposed. Wow. <laughs> um, uh, and, I mean, that's, that's, how it was, um, that's how it was said to me. So, Yeah, I, I think as we've discussed over the last several weeks and as we've been <clears> reporting on as city business has evolved, it just feels as though there are some tug of wars going on right now between elected positions and the administrative positions, the very structure of the government is on the board as far as up for manipulation. And I think it's the wrong move on anybody's part to compromise the structure of something we all need to believe in as people that live here. So that's my that's my sincerely held belief, and that's what I think people need to guard against. So, uh, Roger, I, I want to say thanks again for coming in today. Uh, it's been a great 45 minutes. Uh, did you have anything you wanted to add to this final uh, little segment here for this session? No, I'm, I'm enjoying reliving old times. <clears throat> and there's a lot more out there. I think we've just touched the surface of the way, way things were coming in. So. I agree. Just, just touch the surface. I agree. I think uh, in the future, I think we can talk a lot about uh, maybe surrounding governments, people that you had to work with bringing Hilliard into the world of Columbus, bringing Hilliard into the world of uh, Ohio, essentially, from uh, 5,000 people to what, it, to what it is now and what it was uh, during your administration. The only reason Hilliard is this large is through annexation. Mm -hmm. Taking land from Columbus's service contract and putting it in ours. So I worked with uh, um, Marilyn Shuck and Mayor Moody, uh, Bucky Reinhardt, and all those people. And uh, it was not easy. They don't want to give up land, you know, but we could. Trades. We all became friends, really. And we I would How many Columbus mayors were there in the 26, 24 years you were there? Uh, Sensenbrenner. Moody followed Sensenbrenner, I think. Yeah. And then I guess Ryan was Reinhardt. Reinhardt. Reinhardt, and then. Greg. Greg Lashuka, so four. Well, there was a. Yeah, you know, I thought it was a Democrat in there. I can't think who it was. <clears throat> Sensenbrenner was. Well, he Democrat. was, yeah, but he was. Um, on his way out. Tom Moody. Okay, it was four. What we should maybe do is uh, get some historical background on the win-win and how that kind of shaped the 70s and 80s and the that annexation trend that you're talking about mm -hmm. because water, always a primary concern, right up there with sidewalks uh, mm -hmm. as far as public health and, and development is concerned. So, yeah, that sounds like a great place to go next time we have you in. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stories out there. Uh, <coughs> One comes to mind, uh, Jim Truman. You familiar uh, the roads named after Truman. him? Okay, sure. he, he was a race car guy, but he, had, he, built, he built the Red Roof hotels, and, and uh, Ray Hall was his driver. Uh, so Red Roof. He, 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 he lived just outside of Hilliard. 
<clears throat> on the other side of Hayden Run Road. And uh, we, we couldn't get that land, people to annex in there, you know. And, and one morning I came in and the phone rings and it's Jim Truman. And he's, he's on the phone and he said, listen, he says, I want to annex my property, I want to do it quick at the Hilliard. I, I, I was kind of startled. But he says, if someone tried to break into our house last night, he says, I called the sheriff, and he says it took him an over an hour to get here. And he says, that was enough for me. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Motivated decision-making right there. Bang. Suddenly, uh, a landholder becomes a stakeholder in a bigger city project. That's very That's very cool. And it emblematic of a thing that happens less and less now, that considered legacy. I want to talk about that a little bit next time you come in, too. The idea that maybe some of these stakeholders, some of these people that have this land yet remaining in the outlying parcels might want to consider a legacy kind of like Jim Truman did and think about what it would mean to become part of Hilliard and how to become part of Hilliard. But maybe that's for next time. Okay. All right. Whatever. Unless you want to keep going, Kevin, start another one. I'm good. All right. I'll be back uh, with some uh, more information on the July 10th council meeting. We've got our and usual some updates other, some coming other this week. Some future guests uh, in the summer as well. Yeah, uh, Robin Brenneman next week from the Yeah, I've, I've invited Robin Brenneman to, to, to come into the studio uh, to speak a little bit about the Hilliard Arts Council and the nice. somewhat yeah. new Hilliard Civic and Arts Cultural Building. I think it's been there about three years. Um, but we prior, prior to that, you know, the Arts Council had to kind of beg, beer, beg bar, borrow and steel so to speak they do their performances at some of the high schools around but they got their own um they have their own civic maybe association uh, now maybe robin will remember uh we started that uh, arts council and uh, we were i had, i invited her to talk about that and uh, um, we were someone's basement talking about things but ken and uh, mm -hmm. robin and phyllis ernst and uh, a few other people came up with that idea i think this City gave him a thousand dollars, so I don't just I don't know what it was. Wasn't for, back then that was a lot of money for <laughs> sure. Hey, a start's a start is a start is a start, and we'll talk about it in the uh, days and weeks to oh, come. Good. And uh, maybe we'll have you back for that one too. But All thank right. you again, Roger. We appreciate you coming in this week. Okay, and, my uh, friend. Thank you.